Uh, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I, my name is Tim Latham. I work with young adults here at Third, and I help Corey out with special projects. I'm also finishing up seminary at Gordon Conwell. Uh, I was a little bit nervous about preaching uh, here this morning, and so last week I was talking to a friend of mine, um, and we had we didn't know each other the last time I preached last August. Uh, but he was trying to give me a boost of confidence. He told me that initially he thought I was a 45-year-old man who had really seen some things. Um, I wasn't sure whether or not that was a compliment because I'm actually only 28. But nevertheless, I am honored to be sharing God's word with you this morning. If you'll please join me in praying over our time in the text. Father, I pray that this morning these words and this message would reign supreme. I know that you have a message in this text for each and every person who will hear the sermon. I ask that you use me as a vehicle for this message and that your spirit will reach out and edit uh, the transmission and the reception so we may all grow closer to you. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. Uh, Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 63, if you would like to follow along in the Bibles or on page 9 of your bulletin. A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night, because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Just real quickly, uh, since I already said I don't know y'all that well, you don't know me that well, I wanted to have a quick dialogue, just a show of hands so we know where each other are coming from. Uh, Get to know you question, if you will. Could you raise your hands if you are currently or have ever been in love with a motor vehicle of some kind? Okay, a fairly, a fairly good amount. I appreciate it. The 10 o'clock service uh, did not. I don't know. That was strange. Um, for most of my life, I was in love with the truck. And you know, it may seem strange, but my grandfather bought it when it was new, and he gave it to my dad. My parents are down here. He gave it to my, my dad when my parents got married in 85. And one of my earliest memories is... My dad pulling me onto his lap when we would enter the neighborhood, and he put my hands on the wheel, and I acted like I was driving. Um, it was like the lyrics to an Alan Jackson song. Uh, but it, he put my hands on the wheel, and it just it felt amazing. When I actually got my license, my parents gave me the truck, and it became an even bigger part of my identity. Uh, my truck was recognizable all over Lynchburg, where I grew up, and later Williamsburg, where I went to school. All of my self-confidence emanated from the truck. I, I, think, I think that one of my college application essays was about my affection and relationship for the truck. I think it was called 4.9 liters of love for the, the size of the 
there were times in my life where I considered the truck to be my best friend. And yes, that's slightly sad and embarrassing, but it's real. And when the truck died here in Richmond, and I couldn't afford to tow it or store it, let alone fix it, I completely broke down. I, I called my friends to cry over the phone. I called one of my friends to go find the truck and to rip off as many mementos as possible that I could keep. I have one with me here. This is the cover of the, the glove compartment, which, which makes a great paperweight uh, for your desk. Some of my friends uh, in college had cautioned me that I treated my truck like an idol. And they were right. My confidence was so wrapped up in this machine. My chief desire was for it to be working. And in that moment, my thirst and ultimate longing were not for God. They were for my friend, the truck. Psalm 63 paints a very different picture of longing. It paints an appropriate picture of longing. It shows us how David aspired to long for God despite his circumstance and I believe this morning that it's, it's a challenge for us about whether our thirst resembled David's thirst. This morning, I'd like to talk about how we were made to long for God, why we don't long for him, and how we can overcome these obstacles to better resemble David's longing. First, we were made to long for God. See, in the text, David demonstrates a, a strong commitment to God that despite everything that's happened in his life, He is earnestly seeking, thirsting, fainting, praising, and clinging to the Lord. He shows an amazing amount of confidence in God. I'd like to look at a couple of those verbs just to get a better sense of David's longing in Psalm 63. In verse 1, David longs for God by earnestly seeking and thirsting for him. See, David's ultimate desire is to long for God at all times. He writes in verse 3, your love is better than life. Let's just look at these phrases again. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you, and your love is better than life. These are very powerful words. I love movies, pretty much all genres, and and these words remind me of my affection for romantic comedies, or chick flicks, as they call it in the biz. What re- I, uh, and, and when I was in public speaking class in college, I gave a very rousing, persuasive speech to encourage my male classmates to embrace the art of the chick flick, which I think makes me kind of an expert on the subject. And as an expert, I want to tell you, there, there, there are two different types of these movies. There are great ones and there are terrible ones. <laughs> now... What really separates these two types is the cheese factor. How over the top are the lines? Could you actually imagine someone you know saying these? In box one, you have great movies, uh, about half of which have Meg Ryan in them. In box two, you have, you have terrible movies that are made by like the Lifetime Channel and ABC Family for every single conceivable holiday. Now, if you took, this is my opinion, but if you took David's words describing his longing for God in this psalm, and you drop them into a script to describe longing for another person, that movie would always be box two. It's not believable. It's over the top. If when Harry had met Sally, Harry had told Sally that her love was better than life, Sally would have laughed in his face. But see, David longs for God in this very powerful way. And it's not only powerful, it's not only extreme, it's also tangible. He describes it as a thirst. If you're a Christian, 
you probably feel that on a theoretical level, uh, your longing should be for God. You probably know that you should be like the wise builder in Matthew 7 and build your house on the rock, on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But I would guess that that knowledge doesn't always trickle down into your real desires, your real thirst, your daily longings. If you're not a Christian or you're not sure what your chief desires are in life, I would posit that we're actually all in the same place. See, functionally, regardless of how you define yourself spiritually, we are all desiring things that are not bringing satisfaction. And satisfaction is very important. David mentions it in verse 5 when he's talking about his longing, and he says he's being satisfied as with the richest of foods. See, David's satisfaction in his longing is what leads him to praise, leads him to remember and worship God, even though he's far from the temple. I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but we're not exactly sure when in David's life he wrote this psalm. But in David's life, he had a lot of things that he could have found satisfaction in. After all, he slayed Goliath and was a hero to his people. He became king. He learned to play the lute very well. He married uh, beautiful women. He had a huge family. He won many battles. In reality, David was a military hero, musician, and king rolled into one, but he did not find a satisfaction in those things. He found a satisfaction from the Lord, as with the richest of foods. In the message, Eugene Prudent, Eugene Peterson translates this verse as I eat my fill of prime rib and gravy. I smack my lips. It's time to shout praises. And what I like about that is that Peterson gets that God is David's comfort food. It's what he longs for at all times. It's fully satisfying and it's powerful enough to provoke praise. Before moving on, I just want to address uh, some of the verbiage in the final few verses of 63. Some of you might remember that this summer, as we're studying the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms were nominated by members of the congregation. Psalm 63 was proposed by Val Kling, and without getting into the the details of her story, uh, this Psalm really provided uh, solace and comfort to Val during seasons of health concern. And I've been amazed these past few weeks how many of you have some connection with this psalm. Many people have pointed out how specific phrases from the first eight verses provided comfort at some point in their life. Surprisingly, I haven't yet had someone bring up the line about their enemies becoming food for jackals providing comfort in their life. But there's still time. But Val pointed out this, Val pointed out this delineation, right? The, these first eight vo- verses which have provided so much comfort for her and for others And verses 9 to 11, which seemed like they didn't match. See, I believe that this connection between these two sections is David's confidence in God. See, in the beginning, David is communicating his confidence in God, that he knows he has access to him, and that God can quench his thirst, his longing. Later, David is confident in God's justice. That's why David says that he clings to God in times of trouble. See, he clings to him daily in the watches of the night when he's removed from family, from friends, and from the religious offices of the temple. He's confident in his longing for God, both when facing external enemies and his own mistakes. No matter the situation, David understands this need to be reliant on God. So here's the question for us this morning. Do we long for God the way David does? What are the things that we're earnestly seeking or thirsting for? 
I would argue that in reality, many of us are not building our houses on the rock. In reality, many of us are building our houses on our own plans. In reality, our appetite is often not for God, but for higher salaries, for promotions, our family, the success of our children, or finding a good enough deal on an old F-150 that our wife will actually let us buy a replacement truck. This morning, are you actually trusting God to meet your needs, to guide your steps, or are you relying on your own wisdom, relying on your own planning, your own ability to be self-sufficient? C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So why do we submit to these weak desires? Why are we so happy making mud pies? Why don't we long for God the way David does in Psalm 63? The psalm alludes to two obstacles in our life which keep us from this longing. First, some of us don't feel the need to long for him. Some of y'all are sitting and you're thinking, okay, this is the part in the sermon where the, the preacher says something nonsensical or overly spiritual that doesn't get me, right? It doesn't get the way the real world operates. After all, part of being an adult in our society revolves around making plans. Uh, I think this is the biggest change in my life since I got married. Uh, before I got married, when I was in college, I never made plans. I, I remember one time in college, a couple of friends were going from Williamsburg, Virginia to Starkville, Mississippi for a weekend trip. Uh, and I was not planning on going. But as the car was backing out of the driveway, I had changed my mind, chased it down, and hopped in. No plans, no clean clothes. Now, nowadays, my wife and I plan out our meals for the week so that I can then efficiently plan my trip to the grocery store. We all have plans. We have financial plans, professional plans, personal plans. We have specific desires for ourselves, our children, our church, our country, and we're confident that if we can just reach it, if we can reach that next level, everything will be better. If we could get one promotion, if our kid could get into that school, if we could make this much money, we'd finally be able to rest. We'd finally be satisfied. Now, these plans are too weak. They're too small. I'm not saying that we shouldn't make plans, that we shouldn't save or have hopes or make prudent decisions in our lives. What the psalmist is suggesting is that we have to hold these plans with open hands and not to put all of our confidence in the details or the success. For the past year or so, uh, I've been leading or helping lead uh, a team that's trying to ascertain a way for, for third to help post-college individuals learn more about their faith and vocation and really start their adult lives well. When Corey and I first discussed this about two years ago, we had some ideas of what we were hoping it would look like. Those ideas are completely different than the current concept that the team now has. And that's not just because the team has a lot of intelligent people who have had a great input. It's also because the entire time we've been praying that God's will be done instead of Corey's will be done or Tim's will be done. See, the Bible clearly states that we should be good stewards and not put our... And use our own wisdom to make plans and try to be effective, but that we should not put our ultimate trust in our ability. Our confidence should be in the Lord. The other problem 
with placing our longings somewhere other than God is that it often doesn't work. It doesn't provide the satisfaction that we seek. See, when we place our confidence in ourselves, we seek satisfaction in marriage, in work, in status. This week, um, our communications director, Becca Payne, uh, sent me a link to an interview with Aziz Ansari. He's a comedian, actor, director, etc., etc. And they're asking him, his last project has gotten a lot of um, positive feedback, and they're asking him what he's going to do next. And he didn't know. And, and what he said is, if you asked anyone who's now rich and famous what they'd do um, if they became rich and famous, he didn't think any of them would say, I want to become more rich and famous and work all the time. But that's what they do. Their level of satisfaction changes. What they thought would be satisfying isn't. And that perfect level of success that will provide the satisfaction they seek is always just out of reach. Tim Keller suggests that this is the, li- this is the root of midlife crises, that we pursue the wrong sort of satisfaction for a longing, and then we realize we'll never be able to quench that thirst. See, our appetites lead us to things that aren't filling enough to satiate our longing. When we encounter these failings, we can feel directionless. We feel like we've followed the wrong road for far too long. If the first obstacle is, is primarily internal, our own choices and preferences leading us astray, the second obstacle we can encounter that can keep us from longing for God is more external, related to our current situation, our current predicament. Uh, some of y'all might already have experienced this uh, you might, the obstacle where, you might have already experienced where the obstacle is not your own desire to provide for yourself, but the fact that you're already in your own wilderness. It's not that you are currently pursuing the wrong things, but that you find yourself in a place that feels far from God. This brings us to the first words of Psalm 63, the attribution, David was in the wilderness of Judah. So just a couple of words, and why is that wilderness significant? Earlier I mentioned there's some disagreement concerning the context of this psalm. Scholars aren't sure whether David penned this when he was hiding in the wilderness from Saul earlier in his life or when his son Absalom drove him out of Jerusalem and into the wilderness later. But both of these were wilderness experiences for David. He was running for his life, completely removed from family, his friends, his home, and the temple. Either way, it's obvious when he wrote this, David was distraught. His plans had failed. I think it's important to note that for some of us here this morning, these emotions are not theoretical or far away. Some of us feel our own wilderness right now. I believe that lots of times our wilderness occurs when our own plans fail, when our thirst is not quenched, when our longings are not met. It might be when our loved ones encounter debilitating illnesses, when our children drift away, when our parents begin to lose their memory, when our friends abandon their faith, our marriages fall apart, when our job doesn't provide any sort of excitement or purpose, or when our finances don't provide for our lifestyle. What's your wilderness today? Where are you far removed from your plan, from your home? See, these wildernesses keep us from longing for God because longing for God does not seem like the answer to these problems. During times like this, biblical maxims don't seem to help. Recently, a friend of mine's father died very suddenly, and a pastor had counseled her and her family that people with the best intentions 
would say the dumbest things imaginable. They made a game of it, noting all the unhelpful and at times painful sentiments people would express, intending their words to be comforting. Because, y'all, when you feel actual desperation, when you feel the sides closing in on you, the ground moving beneath your feet, in those moments, the obstacle is not your appetite, it's your desperation. There's an old saying that preachers should prepare with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Um, I don't actually get the newspaper. So yesterday I was preparing with the Bible in one hand and Twitter in the other. Um, and that was, not, that was not good yesterday. As Twitter continued to update me, I was getting constant updates and seeing videos streaming in uh, from Charlottesville, just down the road. For those of you who haven't seen any of this, Uh, Yesterday, there was a rally in Charlottesville of white nationalists and white supremacists. There are videos of someone intentionally trying to hit counter-protesters with their car. Many were injured, and at least one person died. As I was watching this play out yesterday, I felt like I was in a wilderness. I felt like this reality in Charlottesville was so far removed from God. I talked to a couple of friends who are people of color, and they told me how terrified they were by the images and updates coming in, how real their fear was for their own safety. I thought back through the history of white supremacy in this country and how often these people would act out of prejudice and hatred on Saturday, but still make it to the pew in time for Sunday worship. And I realized that the church is not immune to this wilderness. In fact, the church has often contributed to people feeling removed from God and the kingdom. And we've already talked about how as individuals we can choose to long for things instead of God, but groups do that as well. And these groups of hate and prejudice that oftentimes cite uh, a rooting in Scripture or Christian faith, these groups of hate and prejudice are not a byproduct of Christian faith. They are antithetical to life as a Christian. These groups often choose their self-interest, political identity, hate, terror, any sort of instead of any sort of integrity or desire for God. We must stand up because longing for God in the way that David also means longing for God's things and God's kingdom, and God's kingdom stands against racism, hatred, um, and terror. Luckily, this psalm has good news for us, whether we're in the process of misplacing our appetites or experiencing our own wilderness. The psalm tells us that we can overcome these obstacles and really long for God. John Donne, one of my favorite poets, describes Psalm 63 as an ointment for all sores and one of the universal psalms that was applicable in every situation. That's because it shows David resting on what God has already done. His longing for God comes from confidence that God cares about him, that God has a plan for him. David is often described as a man after God's own heart. But that nickname is is not based on David being a morally good person. It's because David had faith. His confidence was not in himself and what David had accomplished, but in who he knew God to be and what God had done in David's life and throughout history. But the words of this psalm are just as aspirational for David as they are for us. By that I mean these words don't exemplify David's entire life. They show emotions that he was striving to exemplify. David did not always earnestly seek the Lord. He was not wholly satisfied in God when he saw a woman bathing on a rooftop. In that moment, David's thirst was for something entirely different. But he aspired to meditate on God in the watches of the night. 
David had experienced the gospel, had felt the forgiveness and grace of the Lord, and he knew God personally. He had a real relationship with him. That's what's necessary for us today. Because before we can put our confidence in God, before we can truly long for him in the way of David, we must know him. We've been talking a lot this summer about the Psalms as a prayer book, and throughout the history of the church, this psalm has been a very powerful and common prayer. The early fathers said that no, let no day pass without the public singing of this psalm. This week, I'm challenging you to take a similar step towards knowing God and trusting him by using this psalm. We have two options for you. The first is the spiritual discipline of examine. Um, this is a time of reflection over the past day where you recognize God's nearness and the access you have to him. We have four steps. One, prepare by acknowledging God's presence. Two, review the day from a posture of gratitude. Third, name a spiritual consolation and desolation from the day. The consolation would be a time where you experienced the love of God. The desolation might be a time where you felt troubled, sad, anxious, or restless. And finally, Look at tomorrow with new hope. The second option would be to memorize Psalm 63. Uh, like I said earlier, I've been amazed this week how many of you all have connected with a certain phrase, a certain verse in the psalm, how many of you have tapped into the comfort of David's words. It's very difficult to tap into that comfort if you don't know those words. And um, One of my mentors, a, a guy named Dick Woodward, had a saying that will always stick with me. He said, when you get people into God's word, God's word gets into people. I firmly believe that something happens when you memorize scripture. Something happens when you allow space for God's written word and God's living word inside your head and your heart. Because ultimately, the gospel is the only thing that can change these desires and these appetites. It's the only thing that can conquer the desperation of a wilderness experience. See, the gospel can take someone who's suffering through an agonizing experience and, and give them hope, give them a posture of praise just like he did in the life of David. The gospel can also take someone who is longing for some sort of worldly status or beholden to earthly appetites and make them into an instrument of God's kingdom, just as he did in the life of David. You see, these spiritual disciplines allow us to grow closer to God, to know him in more intimate ways, and to create a space for renewal and change, to better resemble the longing of David in Psalm 63. So this is Alex and the band come forward. We need to learn to long for God the way he intended us to, regardless of distractions and circumstance, because God is not interested in our spiritual life if it's divorced from the rest of our life. Jesus did not die in order to impact our Sunday morning worship, but in order to provide salvation and renewal for every day of the week. Amen.